Introducing the new Poloniex trading system, now with 30 times faster order matching, 10 times faster transactions, an enhanced user interface, and even more comprehensive features. Trade like a pro on Poloniex. For more information, visit poloniex.com now. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Hi ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host and Copeland, filling in for Frank Chaparro for part two of a three-part special series on the Ethereum merge. Joining us today on The Scoop is my co-host Larry Sermak, VP of Research here at The Block. And on the other side of the mics is our guest, Danny Ryan, researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. Danny, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. For those who don't follow you on Twitter, can you explain for our listeners your perspective on the Ethereum merge and how you've been involved for the past years in its development? I'm, I'm more of a retweeter. I try to stay out of that mess. So, but the merge, uh, yeah. So I, I work at the Ethereum Foundation. I've worked officially at the Ethereum Foundation since the beginning of 2018, and starting in 2017, started looking at proof of stake systems and Ethereum. At which point, as I was kind of coming into this, was convinced proof of stake quote, Casper is coming. There was a feeling that Ethereum would be moved to proof of stake imminently. And that was five years ago. Turned out there was a lot of work to do, a lot of fundamental R&D, a lot, a lot of engineering, and a lot of testing. Um, so I've just been spanning the gamut on that for the past five years now, uh, helping move Ethereum from proof of work, proof of stake. Danny, I remember going to conferences like 2018, 2019. I remember everyone basically telling miners, hey, like this is happening soon. Like you should all prepare. Like this is imminent. This is literally happening next year, the latest. And, you know, it's been at least four years since then. So can you, you know, talk a little bit more about kind of where did the biggest disconnect happen? Um, I remember, you know, Ethereum Foundation doesn't really like to give clear deadlines. But, but <laughs> overall, you know, there there's still some people right. that would sometimes say, hey, this will 100% happen by 2020, 2021, like no chance it's not happening then. Now it's 2022 and, you know, finally it's happening, but it, it took a while. So can you maybe tell us a bit more about why these things happen and yeah. what exactly kind of caused, caused it? There's a number of things here. So, you know, people since before the genesis of Ethereum, had a hunch that maybe we should move to proof of stake. There's some deficiencies in proof of work and and we should get there. At that point, it was a hunch, you know, it was an intuition. Maybe we can design better systems, but there's a lot of research to do. Come 2017, it felt like a lot of the research had been completed and there were some concrete specifications and beginning to, to come out. At the beginning of 2018, this is one of the first things I, I really started working on was a co-authored EIP 1011, hybrid proof of work, proof of stake, that was going to kind of transition or layer proof of stake on top of proof of work and then remove proof of work eventually. This is when in that 2018 timeframe, it was like, it's imminent, it is coming. Like there were beginning to be test nets and that kind of stuff. At the same time, research continued. The minimum stake requirement for hybrid proof of work, proof of stake was 
1500 ETH, which is a lot, uh, compared to the minimum stake requirement on the beacon chain, which is 32 ETH. And that was kind of in, in the research cycle, realizing that with BLS signatures, which allow for aggregation of signatures into a much more compressed format across many different parties, and with some network sophistication on the P2P layer to actually do the aggregation, uh, that we could greatly, greatly reduce the minimum stake requirement and thus you know, make this more democratized, make it more decentralized, and have a better chance at being in good shape. So I think similarly, there was there were parallel R&D efforts around sharding, which is kind of a blanket term for scaling Ethereum. And these were very disjoint, these two efforts, uh, even such that there might be a vision of validators that do proof of stake and then different validators that do sharding. And, you know, these games, the kind of the interplay between these two core protocol mechanisms, it just didn't quite add up. Um, and so shifting then was the unification of sharding and proof of stake into one design and making some of these bigger research and technological bets to greatly reduce uh, the, the threshold to stake. So that's when modern Ethereum proof of stake began, was like mid 2018. And it hurt. <laughs> you know, we threw out a lot of work, we crushed a lot of dreams, and we're entering a terrible bear market. So all of those things together, you know, if you were waiting on Ethereum proof of stake as like kind of this, this beacon of light. It was a painful experience. Then things are complicated. You know, then it was, okay, certainly by 2020. Okay, certainly by 2021. Um, and a lot of that had to do with one, turning uh, research into concrete specifications is, is a process. You know, you have these beautiful mathematical algorithms and proofs and, and kind of design goals. And then when it comes time to actually turn that into something concrete and actionable there's a lot of work to do so specifications really didn't harden towards sometime in in 2019 and there's a kind of a feedback loop between you have research you have specification writers and then you have production engineering and when you're trying to architect these systems there's things that are blind spots you don't quite understand until you're actually writing it, you're actually testing it at scale and stuff. So the, there's this, this feedback loop that's also happening in there. So we finally get to the end of 2020 and launch the beacon chain. What does the beacon chain do? It's a consensus mechanism. It comes to consensus on itself. It is Ethereum proof of stake, but it doesn't really bring much value to the end users. Then there was an intuition that uh, merging these things would be really simple. <laughs> and I think uh, some ambitious timelines were Certainly by the end of 2021, I'm sure that was stated out loud by many people. It turns out that the engineering was moderately complicated. The, the specifications were moder moderately complicated, but the, the testing and the security around this thing, I think really became the long tail of getting to the point that we're at right now. Smashing together these two systems has complexities and we got there, but actually like testing them, actually orchestrating these the, the complexity of these kind of like node pairs, writing new infrastructure to, to detail out different scenarios, and really, really being sure that Ethereum mainnet was ready to go into this proof of stake consensus mechanism. That, you know, that's the last six months, that's the last nine months. And the answer why is there's a lot, there's a lot of complexities, there's a lot of moving parts and doing this in this kind of like open iterative way with, and I didn't even mention, there's like 10 different production engineering teams building out different components of software that interop with each other. You know, we're slower than we wish we were. Yeah, you, you mentioned the complexity. Why did Ethereum developers in general choose to migrate the chain and end up kind of folding the proof of work chain into the proof of state chain, as opposed to simply launching a new kind of proof of state chain from scratch? So in some sense, you know, the Beacon Chain is a new proof of stake chain that was orchestrated in, from scratch and operated in parallel to that proof of work chain. But the question of maybe why doing it in this piecemeal way, some of that is historic. Some of that is the need, given that some of uh, the new, radically new things that we're doing with the Beacon Chain, the need to just be able to do that in isolation from the existing proof of work Ethereum, such that you know the Geth developers can keep their heads down and fix sync and fix complex state accesses and, and fix DOSs on the mempool and keep and stay head down where other people could then architect 
this complex thing, the beacon chain in parallel. So part of it was just kind of this historic necessity to just have a fresh place to, um, to be working. And then, you know, from a, another practical standpoint is I believe knowing what I know, it would be incredible, incredibly irresponsible to simultaneously stop proof of work on Ethereum and start proof of stake on Ethereum. You know, I think this is, there's a lot of, there's a lot riding on Ethereum. There's a lot of people that use Ethereum. There's a lot of value on Ethereum. There's a lot going on. And it's actually probably less complicated to have this entire system operating in parallel that Ethereum's kind of migrating into than to do the, do the switch as a hard stop. And even if it's not less compl complicated, it is certainly de-risked. You know, we have this consensus mechanism, the beacon chain that's been operating in a either production or at least semi-production fashion uh, for almost two years now, which you couldn't do that if you did the hard stop. So some people have likened the merge and just in general, the Ethereum improvements is like kind of fixing a broken plane midair. And do you find that, you know, to be a good comparison or is that, is that still flawed? Uh, I always find that kind of funny and probably accurate, but you know, we're not tech people, so we don't know. I've probably used that analogy, you know, like changing the motor in mid-flight. I think that it's actually, I think there's a different analogy that's still complicated, but more apt for what's actually happening in the merge. It's like we built this better plane and started flying it next to the existing proof of work plane. And we're actually taking the payload. We're taking all the contents out of the proof of work plane and we're putting in this other plane in flight. And that's very complicated. I think it's less complicated than changing the motor out. <laughs> it's building another motor, another totally different environment that then you kind of like transport things into in flight, you know? It's dangerous in flight, but uh, less so than like, again, changing the motor in flight would be like the start stop thing. That'd be like, we're now we're done with proof of work and we're starting proof of stake. Um, like actually figuring out how to like get that motor and make sure that that instant swap is like perfect without having, you know, the environment already staged is definitely much scarier to me. Sure. So could you break down to our listeners the difference between the consensus layer and the execution layer and what's changing at the point of the merge? Right. So one way to think about Ethereum today, proof of work Ethereum, Ethereum as it has been since the genesis of Ethereum, is we have all the stuff that the users care about. We have the state, which has balances, accounts, and contracts, and crypto kitties, and NFTs, and DeFi. All of that's kind of living in, in this, this user area. We'll call it the execution layer. It's also there's the transactions, there's the mempool of transactions, and there's the software that runs these things. And really, there's another component of that software since Genesis for proof of work, and it, that is the proof of work. That is this, this kind of like thin little brain attached to that execution layer that drives it. So proof of work, the proof of work algorithm says, okay, there's a new block, this is your head now, you know, okay, follow this, do that. You, know, you can think of it as kind of like a little orchestrator of the execution layer. It gives the execution layer kind of like a home, it gives it security. And if you think about what has been refined on Ethereum, what has been improved on Ethereum in the software since its genesis, it's not that proof of work ex uh, consensus layer. It is, it is everything in the execution layer. Everything has to do with users, has to do with you know, new opcodes, new computations, um, more efficient state management, all that kind of stuff. And so really what the merge is, is swapping that proof of work module out that's driving the execution layer for something else. You know, instead of listening to the miners, instead of the algorithm, prioritizing the crypto economic weight of mining power, hash power, instead it's that algorithm, the new algorithm prioritizes kind of the voice and the crypto economic weight of the validators of the system. And so what has happened in Ethereum, which we touched on, is this beacon chain, the, the proof of stake implementation for, for Ethereum was architected in parallel to the proof of work chain. And so what we have is we have some software that is really highly sophisticated proof of stake software, these beacon chain clients uh, in teams. And then we have on the, on the execution layer, on the proof of work side, we have highly sophisticated software at managing the execution layer, managing state and transactions and accounts and all that kind of stuff. And really what the merge is, is instead of listening to that proof of work, it's listening to a different consensus layer, which is an adjunct piece of software, these beacon chain clients, the consensus layer clients. 
Um, and so the, the really nice thing here is that, you know, the proof of stake Ethereum is it's not simple. Sim simplicity was uh, certainly a design goal. We always want these things in consensus systems as simple as possible. But, you know, it's a relatively complicated piece of software. And we have teams that have specialized in building this piece of software. And then we have teams that specialize in kind of the EVM and all the things around the EVM. Um, and really what the merge is from, a, from an engineering perspective and from a software perspective is it's the unification of these two pieces of software over a thin communication protocol where the beacon chain gets to say, hey, execution layer, here's a new block. This is your new head. Follow this. Give me some transactions, that kind of stuff. So I... You know, it's a bit of a happy accident. It wasn't entirely planned on how these things would divide into these like very, what became elegant layers. Uh, but now we have this modular approach has allowed teams to specialize. It's allowed to kind of like isolate testing. It's allowed to kind of really help manage the complexity of a relatively complex system. Sure thing. So Danny, how will the merge affect Ethereum's impact on the environment? Right. So... I imagine people are relatively familiar with proof of work. Essentially, miners show up and compete to try to get issuance and transaction fees. And the amount of mining power, the amount of hashing that is willing to compete is going to be kind of a direct linear function of the value of the asset being issued, right? So, you know, if the underlying uh, crypto asset 10x's, then in, in equilibrium, you would expect 10 times the amount of uh, mining power to come up. And that's, you know, this is a, a crypto economic uh, algorithm, essentially, like people post some sort of collateral mining power in the burning of energy to compete in this game. And a byproduct is security. And, and they also, you know, they're doing it selfishly to try to try to get these, these tokens. So we have this kind of linear relationship between the value of ETH or the value of whatever the proof of work token is and uh, the amount of energy being burned in the proof of work algorithm. In proof of stake, that goes away. Uh, so I you know, I'm kind of allude to, I call this in proof of work, this they have a crypto economic asset and they, they kind of post it. But you know, essentially the, the equivalence here is when we move to the proof of stake is instead of that crypto economic asset that kind of bounds your influence on the system being mining power and the burning of energy. It is the end protocol asset itself. It is put at risk and given kind of duties and roles. And if performed well, the validator, uh, the entity can, can make money if performed poorly can, can lose money. And so you get kind of a nice translation here, but instead of having the equilibrium being related to the burning of energy and the kind of something outside of the protocol. It's kind of all integrated into the protocol. So in terms of energy impact, you know, my napkin math shows like somewhere between 99.95 and 99.99% energy reduction. But it's, it's, it's more than that. It takes away the fundamental relationship of energy, burning energy to the protocol. So like the protocol can be valued at whatever, and it's not going to burn more energy. So the protocol can go up 10x, it's not going to burn more energy. It can go down 70% it's not going to burn less energy. Just it's just a network of nodes. You know, it's just a network of computers. You know, somebody was trying to tell me like like how can you make this tangible to people and I'm like, I don't know. Let me think 10,000 nodes on the network, like maybe it's 400 middle schools, I don't know, worth of worth of computers. Like it's, you know, it's it becomes negligible. And and the equilibrium of the number of nodes on the network, you know, isn't even a function of price. So like maybe the equilibrium in the long term is 100,000 nodes. That's just hundred thousand computers doing computational tasks of the sea of, I don't even know how to estimate how many computers there are in the world running on the internet, but um, it becomes a very, 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 very small fraction. Um, so massive changes. Uh, it's a fundamental change. It's not even, not just like, and now we're less, it's like, no, and now we broke the tie to the energy burning. So there has been a ton of testing, obviously, on the merge, you know, on, on each test stance. And you mentioned, you know, this has been a you know, multiple year long process. But there's still some people that think that, you know, it's possible that, you know, it will actually fail or there will be some sort of a critical failure when it transitions. Can you maybe like explain to our listeners of like, how do you think about these probabilities of something actually going wrong? And in that scenario, if you even think that it's possible, 
what would actually happen? Like, would you just revert back to the proof of work chain and then and then start the merge, you know, a few months later? Or can can you just briefly explain kind of like how you think about this? Right. We don't think of it as a matter of if it can happen at this point. You know, it's not a matter of it's it's kind of like any other upgrade. At the point at which an upgrade is ready for Ethereum, it's not a matter of like if it will happen on that date. It's a matter of is it going to go really well? Like I hope it's clean. I hope there's no interruptions. You know, because uh, at this point we're extremely confident that if anything was fumbled in the sense that there was some sort of like software bug or and we have a lot of redundancy a lot across a lot of different implementations of software. So even even a software bug often does not hurt the network even if it hurts a few nodes so it's it's really just a matter of like if something happens how quickly we'd pick it up you know i i, I would say i'm very confident that the network will be healthy after the merge and i'm extremely confident if it's not healthy that things will probably be figured out within an hour and i'm even more confident that you know within 24 hours any sort of even catastrophically weird issues that we did not expect and don't understand would be understood patched and resolved so you know this i think by the developers working on this and largely by the community it's it's kind of like crossing the rubicon it's like it is this commitment to move into proof of stake and to deal with the issues as they come just like in the proof of work network if issues arise we deal with them so you know in terms of probabilities and how we think about that it it's really is there something fundamentally broken about proof of stake ethereum or proof of stake writ large that we don't know or understand and i would say given the formal research given the testing given the formal verification given the given the amount of eyes on this and given that there are many networks operating in proof of stake environments already and given that the beacon chain has been operating uh, for well over a year now, you know, I would put those probabilities of something very fundamentally being broken at very small. And it's unlikely that if that did exist, that we'd even find out at the point of the merge. Like maybe we find out two years later, which again, I think is incredibly small probability. But at that point, it's it's about managing the network. It's about fixing things. It's about figuring out how to move forward, not how to move back. So I think that's that's kind of the mindset of what's going on here is it's we're moving forward. And I think we've kind of like broken something on proof of work. The game's intended to be kind of in perpetuity, like an infinite game. And the incentives totally change. The relationship I think miners have with the network has probably begun to totally change. And I, I think even just like beginning to kind of move into that shift, it becomes not a like sustainable long-term home. I think the, the kind of the game theory starts crumbling a bit. Introducing the new Poloniex trading system with 30 times faster order matching, 10 times faster transactions, an enhanced user interface, and even more comprehensive features. Trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and over 30 other perpetual swap contracts with up to 100x leverage on Poloniex futures and earn staking rewards on a variety of tokens. Trade like a pro on Poloniex. For more information, visit poloniex.com now. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. 
This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe white and woodland green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. And what do you think of the possible miner-led fork? Do you think any assets on the fork will have any value or will it instantly collapse? Like what's going to happen there? So I've seen, I know of at least a couple, ETHPOW and like Ethereum Fair or something. And from a high level, not even looking at the particulars, um, I think the value proposition is is very low, if not nil. I do believe that the Ethereum application layer is highly, highly interconnected and the interdependencies are, are vast. And I would suspect in a, a proof of work Ethereum that continues on that you have kind of a massive and spectacular implosion of what's going on here, you know, from failed oracles to DeFi liquidations to who knows, I, honestly, like somebody doing like a deep dive archival study on like how it falls apart uh, would actually be pretty interesting. Beyond that, I have not seen much competence come out of the groups that are saying they're going to do this. I think if anyone was serious, they should have started a year ago, especially with some of the changes that they're trying to do. You know, I think ETH Powell is trying to remove 1559. Or actually, they said they were going to remove 1559, at which point I thought, that sounds hard. Not to have a chain without 1559, but to have a chain with 1559 and then take it out. Like That's actually a software development task. It turned out like a week later, they're like, well, we'll just send the base fee, which is what's usually burned in Ethereum uh, 1559 into like a multi-sig and we'll fund protocol development. I think because it was too hard to do. So, you know, I, we've looked a bit at their code and I am i don't see a lot of confidence and I don't see a lot of like ethos or community that's going to drive this. I think some people want to do a cash grab and some miners want to figure out a place to mine. And some miners do think that price follows hash like people say that to my face, like they believe this, that is a thesis they believe. And I, I do not believe that is true. So. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Quick follow-up question on that. I remember when, when the ETC, uh, ETH fork happened, I believe that Ethereum foundation took like a pretty drastic approach and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that they started selling the ETC. Is that something that, you know, you guys are planning to do as well with forks that will happen here? Or is it just like the probability of this being successful is so close to zero that you just don't even bother, like even thinking about it? So I know that we ended up actually like multiple, like a year or more later, donating a bunch of ETC to, to some sort of ETC cooperative or foundation. I don't know if the EF got on and dumped. Um, if if so, it was a small amount and most of it ended up getting donated. The strategy right now would be to not engage, uh, to one, not not lend credibility, to not be in the, the massive party of people clicking dump um, to try to race each other out of this thing. I don't know who would be on the other side of that trade. You know, and, and, and over time, maybe if there was a, a viable community and ethos and something maybe maybe a similar donation would happen but i right now it's it's like we focus on the merge we focus on proof of stake you know those other things may or may not exist we shall see yeah and you mentioned testing a minute ago can you go into the the testing that you did for the merge both in terms of migrating the test nets to proof of stake and also the shadow forks right so we do a lot of testing and we also have this this multi-client approach and ethos in in Ethereum, meaning there's a there's a specification, um, an abstract specification of what the Ethereum protocol is, and then we have many implementations of it. Presumably, if I write one and you write one, and we go on the on the network, we should just be able to talk, no problem. And that usually works. So we have like a lot of testing to get us there, to get kind of interoperability, to make sure we iron out the bugs, make sure we all agree on everything. Disagreeing is very bad. That's when you have consensus failures and, and uh, consensus splits. So, you know, we start from the ground up. We write very much like unit cases, you know, given this input, what should the output be? Um, you know, given this block and these transactions, what's the post state route? What is the result here? Um, we, we have a lot of tests like that. Then we have a bunch of simulation tests. So we take uh, nodes into more, slightly more simulated environments where we can say, okay, you get these three blocks, then you get this one weird block. 
what's the result? You know, so these a bit more orchestrated tests where still we kind of have deterministic test results. And but as we get we get farther from this this layer, we get to kind of less deterministic place where once we've done enough of these unit tests and simulations and that kind of stuff, we end up on test nets, right? So we end up on transient test nets, ones where you you spin up 10 nodes in a cloud and make sure they can go through the merge and see what happens, right? And maybe we have one node that's evil and sends like weird blocks. And so those are kind of like isolated environments and limited tests there. Then something that's very been very fun that has come out of the testing the merge effort. So again, a lot of like, we had to come up with a lot of new ways uh, to test this, this new kind of unification of the consensus layer and the execution layer. And one of them that came out that's been extremely fruitful is there are existing public test nets and there's existing mainnet. Um, and essentially you can orchestrate some small set of nodes that thinks there's a fork, right? So like mainnet's not ready for the fork. All the 10,000 nodes and users on the network, they're not going to fork. But you like spin up 30 nodes that have a different configuration that are like, you know what? The merge is tomorrow. We're doing the merge, you know, and, and, and they're all talking, they're all talking to mainnet until their quote shadow fork. And then on some, at some agreed upon point, they fork off and they start building their own little reality. But the nice thing is that you get the mainnet state and you get to pipe transactions from mainnet into this uh, forked environment to try to get some more like organic activity. Interestingly enough, the amount of like valid transactions begins to degrade very quickly. So like after about an hour, a lot of the transactions coming from mainnet no longer really do anything interesting. And that's, that's maybe kind of representative of all of this like interconnected state just imploding in a way that, you know, all of a sudden it doesn't look like mainnet anymore and, and mainnet transactions aren't, aren't really valuable over there. Nonetheless, uh, this has been integral in testing the merge. I, honestly, we should have done it in Forks past and it will be an extremely valuable thing to do in the future. I actually don't know if other blockchains or networks do this. I highly recommend, I mean, it, it, once you do it, you're like, oh, that's obvious. But if there's people listening that work on other networks, integrating this into your testing framework is, is really cool. So that's, that's shadow forking. We do a mainnet shadow fork like weekly and have for quite a long time. Um, there was one last week that I believe was perfect, uh, which uh, is very good news for the coming merge. And we have one, I believe, tomorrow. Um, you know, I don't... I don't think anything could really abort the process at this point, but you know, maybe there'll be a last minute bug found in, in one client, but hopefully it's uh, hopefully it goes really well. So then we also have these public long-standing test nets, a number of them with fun names like Robson, Gorley, Pratter, Sepolia. They're often named after subway stops around the world. These are these provide a, a number a couple of different utility functions for the Ethereum community. One is for application users to test their things. So you can go to one of these test nets, deploy your new fancy dApp, send it transactions in kind of a low value or no value environment. Um, so there's a state there. There's kind of like, it's usually it's a lot less heavy of a state than um, Ethereum mainnet, but there's some activity going on in these environments. And really one of the last parts of our process on any upgrade is taking these public test nets and going through you know the upgrade sequence so for the merge it's launching a beacon chain in parallel to this testnet and then merging them together um, and so that's what we've been doing for the past handful of months is kind of like going through the public test nets and the last one was gorley and, and seeing you know sometimes very successful merges sometimes uh learning some new edge cases or bugs and, and you know i think one of the things that we see a lot in these environments is uh learning about oh the docs weren't great or, oh, stakers for this test net didn't realize you had to do X for this new upgrade. So, you know, that you, you learn a lot from each one of them and it's just kind of part of the that process of rolling out. Danny, for, for normal users like like me or Tim, uh, who just, you know, uses Ethereum occasionally, will there be any interruptions or any anything that a normal user will notice uh, in terms of like wallets, exchanges, anything else that they use frequently? The intention is no. Uh, the merge has been designed to be continuous, to be live, and to not alter or change the execution layer almost at all. Um, and so the 
you know, the JSON RPC, the kind of the user APIs on how you query and, and, and look into the chain, those are entirely stable, except for some proof of work components like get work, submit work, that kind of stuff. Obviously, if you're a miner and using these endpoints, they're not going to do what you expect them to do anymore. And then one of the biggest changes, which again, for users, almost any user is not going to really experience a change here. One of the biggest changes is that in the EVM, there was an opcode called difficulty. And this gives you like a, a value each block about the difficulty of the proof of work chain. Um, it's just, you know, an, a number that's very large and kind of looks randomish, but almost in our analysis, almost no one used this value difficulty for anything but bad randomness. So for the least trying to attempt to be the least breaking of changes, the beacon chain has this random number generator called randau random DAO. It's an algorithm where kind of validators come together and produce a random output, which is valuable for their, their validation. Um, that's actually shoved into what was the difficulty opcode so that applications that were using it for bad randomness have a little bit better randomness. Um, did other chains like Avalanche and Solana actually help kind of the Ethereum community be more confident about proof of stake? I wonder, you know, I, I think the momentum, the desire, the drive, the intention uh, was such that Ethereum was going to prove a stake before many, almost all of these chains, maybe all of them, modern proof of stake chains launched. So I certainly like I think we would be here without them. But, you know, it's it's nice to see uh, complex proof of stake chains in operation you know I, I, the beacon chain is much different than a lot of proof of stake consensuses but a lot of you know there's there's a lots of different flavors at this point so the fact that validators have been able to build chains and validate and overcome issues and and kind of operate in production is there certainly gives me doesn't not give me peace of mind <laughs> should other you know proof of stake chains that function today, like Tim mentioned, Solana, Avalanche, Near, whoever else, should they be concerned about a successful merge happening on Ethereum? Like, is that something that threatens other chains in your opinion? Um, I think it's less relevant to the other proof of stake chains than it is to, to Bitcoin. I think the, the sum total of proof of stake assets will, I believe, someone mentioned this the other day, uh, be larger than proof of work at that point which is just an interesting tidbit. But I, I think when you start thinking about society and maybe regulation and, and other things, that the fact that you have this to the uneducated, if you look at Bitcoin and you see a proof of work chain, and then you look at Ethereum, the second biggest one, and it got rid of proof of work and doesn't have this kind of energy feedback loop, I, I, I kind of think that proof of work might become increasingly socially untenable. Maybe not today. I do, you know, if if Bitcoin 10Xs, I think Bitcoin has like a major problem, you know, with the with the energy, global energy narrative. So to that standpoint, sure. I mean, uh, Bitcoiners will argue with me all day, proof of work, you know, the proof of work, proof of stake, the debate, and we don't necessarily need to get into it. But the, um, I would say it's more to the uninitiated. I think it's more to society at large. You know, I think the fact that Bitcoin would be kind of the last bastion will make it kind of unclear why it, why it's there at all. So just out of curiosity, when you say untenable to society overall, you know, a lot of mining right now happens in, in the US. A lot of it also happens in other car countries like, you know, Azerbaijan and, and, and Georgia and all of these. What do you think could happen if it becomes socially kind of untenable for proof of work to continue functioning? Like, do you envision a future in which you know, Bitcoin can be banned to be traded in the U.S. or is, would it be like banning miners to operate in the U.S.? Because obviously when you do that, yeah. you know, they will just move to different countries and they will continue yeah, yeah. being competition with, with other friendly countries. So I'm just kind of curious. What yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure how it would play out. I, um, you know, part of Bitcoin's value is like adoption. And if a lot of society hates Bitcoin because of proof of work and energy consumption, I think that might hinder adoption. I do believe that China, for better or for worse, managed to root out most of mining in its country uh, because of kind of the degeneracy that it saw on its on its grid and some of the other things. China is obviously a very different place than a lot of other uh, countries that that have Bitcoin mining, but you know it's it is a possible future that regulation cracks down and stuff like that. And and you're right, 
to the extent that Bitcoin is valuable to be mined, it will be somewhere. But I think if you couple it with the lack of the ability for people to want to adopt it because of its kind of energy footprint, then maybe it won't be so valuable to mine. And we saw some of that with Elon already, just like kind of a rough reaction and, and Tesla selling some Bitcoin because of that. So, you know, you're probably right. I was just wondering kind of like, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how right I am. You know, I, I won't make a firm prediction. I just know that um, there's a lot of hate for the uninitiated on, on proof of work, uh, whether whether it's warranted or not. And I think that I have a hard time imagining that abating. Um, as for proof of stake, Vitalik did an interview recently where he acknowledged that kind of one of the biggest concerns about proof of stake is stronger centralization pressures. Are you concerned by kind of any of these possible challenges? Yeah, I wrote a piece a couple of months ago called The Risks of LSD, <laughs> Liquid Staking Derivatives. You know, I think the liquid staking derivative market has certainly given the uh, assessment of the potential futures of centralization and impact and kind of the, the actors at play and the incentives at play certainly brought a lot of that into question. My argument here is, so liquid staking derivatives are essentially some sort of bundling of an operator or many operators as proof of stake operators, their representation of, of their assets and their users' assets into a, a tradable token, uh, which is really exciting and fun and DeFi and yield and risk and leverage, all sorts of all sorts of mad stuff that people like to do with that. But there's kind of this this thing where liquidity begets liquidity. You know, it's it's this the more demand for this kind of asset means the more places it's used, which means the more places, the more people that want to use it and kind of do integrations and that kind of stuff. So we've seen that um, a bit in uh, Lido specifically on Ethereum. Uh, but one of the arguments that I make in my piece is that the incentives are, are certainly there, but I believe that there are quite a bit of risks that are not really seen or understood or attempted to be uh, priced in. So essentially people assume or claim or otherwise don't think about the fact that maybe you can pool these assets beyond certain key protocol thresholds, like one third, one half, two thirds, um, and still be safe because of kind of the indirection or some of the other issues or maybe distribution across many operators. Um, I make a claim that most of these in, in the tail scenarios even though there might be many operators, it devolves into essentially uh, one. Um, and that some of our traditional centralization pressures where you know, you'd say obviously staking one half with just one exchange is really bad. I think actually staking one half with one of these LSDs is likely also very bad. Maybe not as obvious uh, in, the, in the forefront, but when you in some of these tail risk scenarios. Thus, uh, in some of these tail risk scenarios, when capital is doing something bad, uh, capital becomes at risk. And so, you know, I, I would say pooling beyond certain thresholds is risky for the user who's deciding to pull at those thresholds. And I would say it's quite frankly, existentially risky for the, um, the protocol itself. So like Lido encouraging pooling up to 60% of staked assets, you know, is actually um, maybe really exciting for them in the short term and really, really nice even on the one or two year time horizon, but I, I believe uh, represents quite a risk for their their product and their protocol in the long run due to the, the, the emergent risk there. Um, I think that with some of the regulatory no noise that's come out recently on um, mixers and other stuff like that, I think that maybe the, maybe some of these risks are becoming a bit more clear to people. It might be the case that the risks are not become clear and do not become priced in until there's a disaster. And then there will be a disaster and people lose a lot of money and then they'll change their model. Yeah, but, but is there anything that the community can do about this? Because, for, for example, in Lido's case, they considered yeah, self-limiting. They had a whole DAO discussion about it and they voted 99.8% against the idea. Yeah. Are there things that we can do a priori before the disaster? Um, certainly education which 
here I am educating. It's risky to pull your funds with large providers, whether they quote are decentralized or not. Uh, but another component would be competition. You know, I think Lido in the Ethereum case got a huge leg up. You know, they made a great product. It's a great team. They've delivered at a very high level and did so before anyone was even thinking about playing this game. And so have dominated the landscape. I think that over, you know, I know of a number of things that are in the works, uh, working on being launched and either taking similar kind of Lido path or having different competitive advantages that they're trying to hopefully, you know, unseat, bring some more competition to the game. Um, so education and competition, I think, are the big ones. It's unclear to me if the protocol can do anything. Can you explain to our listeners why some of these LSDs are trading at a, at a discount? Sure. So you would expect that almost no matter what. But with the beacon chain, with Ethereum's proof of stake consensus mechanism, when it launched in 2020, it launched uh, such that validators could deposit and become validators and play the game. Uh, the validators can also exit, meaning they can stop their validation, but they can't actually get their funds back. Um, and that's been the case before the merge. And it actually will be the case immediately after the merge. Um, essentially, the faculty needs to be developed for withdrawals back into the Ethereum execution layer to happen. Um, and those are slated for the first fork after the merge called Shanghai. Um, these are specified at some of the work I've been doing recently, getting some testing and stuff and laid in place so that people can work on this uh, soon after the merge. You know, there's, if you have your, your LSD, your, your whatever ETH, your representation of some staked ETH asset, and there's a liquid market where you can trade that for ETH, there's going to be some, you would expect, if a rational market, some sort of discount on that uncertainty, right? Like the underlying asset, when you can actually retrieve it, when you can actually pull it out, when you can actually get it, is kind of as an unknown time horizon. And so there's going to be some sort of discount there. Additionally, I would expect it to trade at a discount because there's additional risks over ETH itself. One, it has risks because it is staked. So staked assets, um, if they are not participating, they can lose a little bit of money. And if they do something explicitly nefarious, like double signing, they can lose a lot of money. Um, and so there's additional risk because the assets are staked. And then there's also just smart contract risk, right? Like the Ethereum protocol has certain properties, certain complexities, and generally sound. You know, the EVM, we rarely have bugs in the EVM, and it, but if we did, we'd fix them. But once you start building on top of Ethereum and extending Ethereum inside of smart contracts, um, the protocol doesn't owe you anything, right? These are, these are kind of like your own environments that you're creating. And, and you're layering additional complexity and additional rule sets and additional, you know, all of a sudden the Solidity compiler is an assumption of your security model. And like the interplay with all sorts of other DeFi is the assumption, assumption of your security model, all sorts of stuff. And upgradability. You know, a lot of these things have upgradability. They almost certainly have to at this point. That is a, a security threat. So any anything like that adds additional risk to holding this LSD. So you'd expect the market will try to, I hope, price that risk accordingly and there will be a discount. Yeah, sure. So I just wanted to ask about when will the staked ETH be unlocked? Like I know some people are worried that at the point of the merge, it's going to get unlocked or down the line, it's all going to get dumped at once. Can you kind of provide clarity on this process? Uh, yeah, so unlocked and what we often call is withdrawals. So withdrawals from the beacon chain back into the execution layer, back into the EVM. Withdrawals are slated to be enabled after the fork after the merge initially it actually was intended to be at the merge uh, but for sake of stripping out complexity and what is probably the most complex blockchain upgrade ever um, they were taken out relatively early in the process and will be uh, added in the next fork they're they're specified people have begun testing there's a couple of like uh, prototypes of, of what this looks like so i don't know when that'll be People will estimate um, almost certainly the fork will happen in 2023, um, at which point users can not only validators can not only enter into the beacon chain, but they can they can pull their funds out. There'd be two features here. One is I'm done validating. Give me whatever money is in my balance, whether that be principal plus some rewards or maybe I lost some money, but I'm out. Give it to me. I'm done with validation. 
And then there will also be a partial withdrawals mechanism such that the minimum balance to stake is 32 ETH. Um, so on some time interval, if you elect to balances in excess of 32 ETH would be swept out of the beacon chain and back into the execution layer. This second feature is really nice because kind of prevent churn on the validator set. So, you know, if there's, if you're operating 10 validators, you have 320 ETH staked and you actually gained 32 ETH instead of, um, you know, pulling them all out and then having to restake because you want now 11 validators, you can, you get the, the nice little partial withdrawal mechanism. Um, and then there's another question there. The question is, is there going to be a race to the gates? I, it's hard to say. It's hard to say uh, what the kind of the, the influence here. I mean, we've seen relatively steady beacon chain deposit growth for quite a while. Um, we've seen times of very large growth. Uh, we've seen times of smaller, smaller growth. Um, but there's been moderately continued demand, um, which you know implies to me that there might be an asymmetry between those demanding to get into the system and those that might be demanding to get out of the system. But I would assume my intuition here is that, you know, there's quote 400,000 validators in the system. So 400,000 times 32 ETH entities in the system. I don't, I don't suspect more than like a 25% drop in that. I'm just making that number out of thin air though. I, you know, I, I, that's my intuition there is because staking demand has re remained relatively high that although there might be some kind of independent validators that want to get out um, or different kind of reshufflings, I, I don't expect massive changes. There is also the fear mongering part of this is like, there's so much ETH in there and it just needs to get out and it's going to just dump on the market. I won't make a claim as to like the impact on the markets here. I will say that due to security reasons, um, there's, there's an exit queue. So there's a limited amount of capital, a limited amount of validators that can exit per epoch. So we call it per day. Um, it's something like 1,200 validators per day. Uh, so if there was a massive flux to exit, that capital wouldn't all just like show up out of the beacon chain instantly. Um, it would happen, you know, even if 50% 50, 50 of the validators, you know, want to exit 200,000 validators, 1250. Yeah, that's like 160 days for all that capital to actually get out. So it's, you know, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> sure. And what are you most excited about uh, besides the merge finally happening? <laughs> uh, DevCon should be fun. Hang out in Bogota. Um, you know, it, like the merge uh, is to make Ethereum, you know, give Ethereum a more secure home and a more sustainable home especially from an environmental standpoint, we need to get some scale, right? And uh, the whole layer two environment, uh, roll-ups, et cetera, are helping bring scale to Ethereum today. Uh, but if we're going to get to a global scale, we need to complement it with some some layer one, uh, additional layer one construction. So, you know, sharding, that's exciting. Uh, you know, we have, we have an iterative roadmap to get there. And I think a lot of people are jazzed to work on the next thing. I'll, I'll ask the last question. So, Layer twos, sharding, or both? Yeah, so layer twos scale with the amount of layer one data. Sharding, first and foremost, gives you more layer one data. So the nice thing is these two things multiply. Layer twos also, because they they can be built uh, heterogeneously, they can, you can build many different types. Um, they allow for lots of uh, experimentation 